Research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. This is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down. Corruption matters, not just because it's corruption, because it influences the process. It affects the outcomes of what our government gives us. Uh, joining today on The Drill Down, uh, Eric Eggers. Eric, great to see you. Always great to see you, Peter. We're actually not in the same room for the first time, so I think that the podcast will only improve and increase, you know, because uh, distance makes the heart and content better. Yeah, and you'll stop kicking me under the table, right? That, that's how it works. We are also joined by our special guest today, distinguished GAI fellow, uh, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee, uh, Fox News contributor and author, Jason Chaffetz. Jason, thanks so much for being with us again today. As always, love it. Thank you for having me. So we are going to talk a little bit today about smoke and mirrors in Washington, D.C., specifically the Biden administration's sleight of hand when it comes to spending. Now, there's this massive COVID relief bill, the America Rescue Plan. I love these titles that they come up with these bills in Congress. Uh, I'm sure Jason probably has some great stories about that. You, you got to get a great name that's also a great acronym. The American Rescue Plan is ARP is what it's known as. It totals $1.9 trillion. However, only about 10% of that funding is actually going to COVID. So the question is, where is the rest of that money going? And we're going to explore that today, discuss it, and explain why this should surprise no one. And it shows how corruption is not just about a politician getting rich, but it undermines the integrity of the entire process that we are trying to work through. So Eric, where exactly is some of this COVID money going? Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, you're calling it sleight of hand. Um, and, and I think it, you're actually right. And I think it's a really interesting point. You know, one time in San Francisco, I lost $100 in a uh, three-card Monty game because I walked up and I saw people on the street playing three-card Monty and I saw this lady next to the dealer like that she had a bunch of wad of cash. I was like, oh, this looks like a winnable game, you know? And uh, so I, I put $100 down and like they did the thing and it turns out I was wrong and then suddenly the police came and like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? This is a scam. So, so slide of hand cost me $100. It's costing, I think, the American taxpayer a lot more money than that because over a trillion dollars is going to things that aren't related to COVID health, right? You got $350 million uh, from ARP funding plus $120 billion that was meant to go for education. The Biden administration announced just last month that it can be redirected for what we're calling community violence intervention programs a.k.a. money that can go to address the rise in crime that came once cities around the country defunded the police. So we're actually spending COVID money to refund things that used to go to law enforcement, but now are going to community organizations to fight the drop in police protection that's resulted in an increase in crime. So, Jason, is this an example where they defunded the police and now they're refunding the police behind closed doors? 
Um, it is in part, and but it, I think the sleight of hand gets even worse than that because these go to democratic initiatives that they see fit, that they want, and oftentimes those end up in being uh, campaign-related activities. They, they go to an untold number of not-for-profits that we have seen use their not-for-profit status to maybe work six or eight hours a week uh, or a day uh, on their not-for-profit. And then at night, they use that same infrastructure, whether they rent a room or a place or whatever, and then they engage in political activity. And, and we've seen this time and time and time again. So if it fits their democratic narrative, it fits their agenda, yes. And we only have to look back, Peter, at the uh, what Obama and Biden did when they got $787 billion to try to revive the economy when they took over. Uh, unfortunately, it was sold as these bridges had fallen in St. Paul, Minnesota, and people had you know lost their lives. And so, of course, we need to rebuild America. And they got this huge amount of money, but only less than 5% went to actually roads, bridges, and highways. And so what they ultimately end up doing is creating more bureaucracy, more government, more people. Salaries went up. I think you'll see when we look in the rearview mirror that there were huge amounts of bonuses um, I think last year, uh, nearly 70% of American government workers at the federal level got a bonus uh, because uh, obviously 70% of the government workers were above average. Um, I don't know how that works, but um, that's what they end up doing. And literally, there are thousands of people one at a time that are suddenly taking home a lot more taxpayer money. Jason, um you make a very important point here. This is not just a question of them funding uh, sort of a a generic uh, community policing program. These are actually going to go to nonprofit organizations and entities that are tied with the political class, liberal Democrats primarily, because they're the ones writing this bill. Uh, and they're going to use this as, sense as a form of political front loading. This is going to be an effort for them to sort of drive home their message and to try to seize even more political power. Yeah, and, and part of the way they do that, there are hundreds of unions, for instance, that will get bailouts uh, on their pension funds. Uh, they were not properly funded. They don't have the means in order to, to, to make sure that they're properly paid. And so when all of a sudden the government comes in and sweeps that off their books, uh, guess what they can do? They can do other things with that money and do other activities. And it happens in such a massive scale. I mean, it, it, we've never seen anything in terms of the size and scope of these this money. So when they're spending hundreds of millions here or hundreds of millions of there, they'll say, well, it's such a small percentage. You really, really shouldn't work, you know, shouldn't worry about that because it's a small amount of money. But that's that's the problem. And, and the concern is that Almost 25% of our gross domestic product now, think about that. It's a stunning number. One out of every $4 spent in our country is going to be spent by the federal government. That, that, I, it's just, it's not sustainable. Yeah. I mean, that's, those are wartime numbers. And to your point, uh, the Wall Street Journal pointed out that the bill, uh, the, uh, remember, this is the uh, rescue uh, bill uh, for COVID, includes $86 billion to rescue 185 pension plans that are managed in part by labor unions. Uh, yeah. They simply haven't them well. They've got huge, massive benefits. Let's talk a little bit, too, about where this money is going to be distributed uh, to, again, quote the Wall Street Journal, the $350 billion for state and local governments, cities, and counties 
is essentially going to Democratic strongholds. Much of the $220 billion for states in the new bill will be allocated based on average unemployment over the three-month period ending in December. That includes what? Andrew Cuomo's New York, Gavin Newsom's California, and of course, why was their unemployment rate so high? because they shut down. So essentially, the federal government's saying states like Florida, uh, states like Utah, where you are, states like South Dakota, which said, we're not going to buy into a lot of this shutdown stuff. Uh, They're going to get stiffed and their taxpayer money is going to end up going to states like New York and California that actually shut down in this panic related to COVID. I mean, it's, it's quite stunning. It's a redistribution of wealth from red states to blue states. Well, and close the loop because of what's connected to economies being shut down, increases in crime, right? So these same cities that have seen their economies crater because they were, everything was shut down, the cities that they've been identified with some of this funding, cities like Baltimore, Minneapolis, Seattle, Chicago, right? These are all cities that are seeing increases in crime at the same time they defunded or cut police funding. And we have some stats on that. So that's what's insane, right? Like the, the the formula that you just cited is set to incentivize cities, like the cities that have worse economies and more crime are now getting more bailout money for COVID. Well, and, and, and Peter, if you put it on uh, in, in another perspective, Utah, I think last year, last month had the lowest unemployment in the nation. So we get penalized the most. That is dollar for dollar, person for person. They're going to get more dollars going into a place that's poorly managed, like California, Illinois, or New York, where we have managed our money well. Uh, For instance, Utah transferred from a defined uh, benefit plan on its pensions for government workers at the state level to a defined contribution plan. Well, that had every benefit and, and huge implications, tough to do. But Illinois didn't make that transition. New York didn't do that. California didn't do that. They owe trillions of dollars in future liabilities. So what Pelosi and Schumer and Biden and Harris have essentially done is figured out a way to 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 put the uh, marketing on COVID and COVID relief. I I do think it's a factor in why we're saying, oh, we need to continue to have masks. Uh, put the science aside, but hey, there's still a panic out here. There's still a, a crisis out here. That's why we're going to have to pass this infrastructure bill. We're going to have to pass another infrastructure bill on top of this, and we're going to have to pass even trillions of dollars more from what we normally do, which is already four plus trillion dollars per per year. And think about it in, in a strange way. Um, this actually encourages states like California, New York, and others to go back to lockdowns because they actually are not going to uh, pay much of a price. In fact, they're going to have this large kitty of money that the federal government's going to give them that's going to allow them to go to their constituents and see, I shut us down to save us, unlike those barbarians in other states. But look at this. I've got all this money to dole out now uh, to uh, make sure that you've got en- enough money to get by. It's the old Milton Friedman statement. If you tax something, you get less of it. If you subsidize something, you get more of it. And this is essentially subsidizing these governments acting in this draconian way as it relates to these shutdowns. Yeah, no, it's that's it's exactly the formula. And it's much like 
uh, that uh, little card game we were talking about. Hey, look over here. Look over here. You know, look at this uh, hearing we're having on uh, January 6th. You know, don't look at the budget we're actually passing. Don't look at the trillions of dollars that are going out the door. I'm not saying that January 6th isn't important, but that's where all the media attention goes. And Pelosi and Schumer and and Biden and Harris, they know this is how you get it done. Get it done in the dead of darkness and do it in one or two big, huge bills. Now, Eric, the media is talking about this, right? I mean, the media is, other than the Wall Street Journal that we've talked about, is the media talking about this at all, explaining to people where this money is actually going to go? Uh, I think you know the answer to that, Peter Schweitzer, and it's uh, unfortunately not. I want to hear you say it. Uh, okay, no, Peter, you're the only one talking about it. Once again, we got to give it's all Schweitzer all the time. No, I mean, I think what's crazy about this is, is that in in conservative, I mean, here's the disconnect, right? In conservative media, you are hearing, I think, some of these key stats, which is specifically like the increase in some of these crime areas. Like I actually know. Uh, I have multiple relatives who balked at taking a trip to a big city because they said, man, I'm not trying to go there. It doesn't seem safe. And my family members that don't watch conservative media or consumer, they kind of couldn't believe it. But the stats are, and I think it's it's such an important frame, right? Like the business model of the pandemic in these areas is being subsidized. Like what is the business model? The business model is economy craters, uh, lower funding for police, right? and then increase crime. Like Barbara Boxer was just mugged a couple days ago in Oakland. Oakland, right in her district, just slashed the funding for police by $17 million. The police commissioner came out and said, crime is, quote, crime is out of control in Oakland and our response is to offer less resources, right? But then these cities are getting um, hundreds of millions of dollars to fund, as Jason points out, nonprofits in the name of community violence intervention but those nonprofits will then turn around and, yeah, they might go and do engage in some of that crime prevention activity. But then they're also going to do other political things. Right. And the crime, the crime wave, the crime increases are real. Right. Chicago cut 400 officers. They've had 1900 shooting victims in Chicago this year alone. That's a 13 percent increase in the first six, six months from last year. Baltimore eliminated 22 million from its police budget. They've seen an increase in crime. Right. Seattle. We reduced police budget by 20%, 25% increase in shots, fired incidents in 2021 compared to a four-year average previously. And don't forget Minneapolis, right? Double the homicides in 2021 year-to-date compared to last year. And that's after they've not only cut money from the police budget, but remember, when they like, this is where the defund the police movement sort of started, right? And people said, well, hey, what happens? You know, you guys are defunding the police after the George Floyd stuff. What happens if somebody wants to call and say, hey, I'm being robbed? And that police commissioner or the city commissioner famously said, well, just remember, if you're calling the police because you're being robbed, that's you operating from a position of privilege. So really, should you be doing anything? I mean, but that's the reality. This is we're now bearing the fruit of those seeds that were planted last year. And you're right. You're not really hearing about it much at all. But but part of but part of what George Soros and some of the others did is they went out and they really were aggressive on these um, prosecutor uh, um, elections. And so I think you see a lot of police officers, this has probably always been the case to to a certain degree, but I see it at levels at a a height I've never seen before. Even the the, uh, uh, police chief in Washington, D.C. saying something's got to change here because police will arrest people, but when they take them off the streets, these prosecutors won't prosecute them. And the prosecutors don't put them behind jail. And you got AOC and the others out there saying, we don't, if you want to incarcerate less people, then you just have to stop building you know, prisons. Well, that's, we have a growing population 
And on top of all of that and everything that's going on, you have the Biden-Harris administration throwing literally hundreds of thousands of people coming across our borders, many which, you know, not all of them. I'm not trying to disparage everybody, but there's a certain element that is the criminal element that is coming into our country. We read about them every day if you look at the right publications um, who are nefarious characters or have been arrested before for rape and these types of things. So it is this circle, but I think the Democrats are understanding that it does that's not polling well. So they're trying to change the discussion, trying to put a happy face on it. But the you you just have to watch where the dollars flow. Yeah, and the strange thing, of course, uh, the obvious thing is there's no evidence that these nonprofits have any kind of effect on the violent crime rate. Uh, right, right. They, they, they talk a good game. They talk about, you know, root causes, um, but there's little evidence that they're effective. What I find interesting, though, in the conversation about crime and, and you know, the defund the police, it seems to me there's a real class element to this conversation, meaning in Chicago, there are people getting shot pretty much every day in the south side of Chicago, sometimes multiples of them in a given day, and it gets completely ignored. But then suddenly in Washington, D.C., I think an area that, that Jason, you know well, uh, there was a, a shooting on uh, 14th Street, uh, which is, is you know, near kind of where the lobbyists are, near the, the monuments. Suddenly everybody has discovered now that crime is an issue. So it seems right. to me that one of the, the curious factors in all of this as it relates to the implications of increased violence is I think a lot of people that live in sort of middle class or even lower middle class neighborhoods experience the fear and the concern and the threat of crime on a regular basis. Uh, people in wealthy neighborhoods don't, or at least they haven't up until this point. But now that it's suddenly occurring near the restaurants they go to, the spas that they go to, maybe their you know million dollar neighborhood homes, suddenly now they've discovered that crime exists. And it's going to be really interesting to see uh, what the response is that even if these progressive wealthy types um, kind of say we've had enough, where are the men in blue? Well, it's almost like the protests that were fine until they reached the restaurant patios last summer, right? Resulted in the police forces being cut, which now means the crime occurs on the restaurant patios. Jason, I mean, do you think there's a class component to this? And do you think that it's reaching the point where even the progressives that that live in safe neighborhoods are seeing this and said, this is enough, we want to change? Or are we not at that point yet? No, I think it's been out of sight, out of mind. I remember when Elijah Cummings, who was who was uh, still alive then, and I was the chairman of the oversight committee, and he was the ranking member, and we traded trips. He came to Utah. I went to inner city Baltimore, and I started to learn things about about food deserts. I'd never heard of a food desert. I had no idea what oh. he's talking about. But there are places yeah. that are so ridden with crime that retailers won't do things. Bankers won't go there. And so the kids and the locals – Guess what? They get Fritos and and um, you know Pringles at the local liquor store. That's what they eat all day. And I was like shocked yeah. by it. And he showed me. He said, "But there's not a retailer that wants to go do business there because it's so the, the it's just lawless." And and I, you're seeing the same thing happen in other parts of the country now, where Walgreens and Target are saying, "Okay, police, you're not going to enforce this. People are going to brazenly come in and just steal our stuff, so we're going to limit our hours." Well, it's going to be just a matter of time till they scootle, they skedaddle out of town. But guess what? If you're a true progressive, if you're a socialist, you kind of like this because guess what? 
They want you to get your information. They want you to get your food, your medicine, and everything else from the government. It's sort of how Cuba works. And people are saying, we don't like it. But there is that element in the Democratic Party that is so radical left. And all this money that's flowing out the door, it's not going to solve these problems in the inner cities. That is not what's happening. They are growing government and subsidies and bailing out unions and giving money to their not-for-profits. We had years of hearings, years of hearings in the Judiciary Committee about how we should get rid of these programs that the Department of Justice was administering. And Bob Goodlett, bless his heart, and a whole bunch of other people, we managed to cut that back a little bit. But now they're coming back as if it never happened. Yeah, those uh, those settlements that the Department of Justice uh, had in the Obama administration, they sent you know billions of dollars to these nonprofits. The Trump administration curtailed that. You guys did a lot of stuff on Congress, but it's back. The doling mm-hmm. of the money is back. So, gentlemen, let's step back for a minute. Uh, it, it's it's always hard in this kind of work when you're exposing corruption and cronyism when you're trying to deal with. It's always hard not to get discouraged. Uh, and people in the audience are probably thinking, well. This is the way it's going to be. This is the way it's always going to be. What can we actually do about it? Um, So let's talk a little bit about solutions. I think part of it is simply people knowing what is in this bill that is supposed to be for COVID relief. And again, the media, we've said it before, has let us down. Other than the Wall Street Journal and a few other outlets, who else is actually reporting what this what is included in this bill? So part of it's letting people know. I still want to believe that enough people get outraged. But the second thing is uh, in Congress. I mean, if you've got people that are aware of this, certainly, Jason, are they feeling pressure from their constituents not to vote for this? Or are they going to sort of go along to get along, even if this is somebody in the opposite side of the aisle? Because now, of course, what do we have? Uh, we have uh, earmarks. Uh, that are back. So there are certain ways that you can bribe members of Congress. Let's focus just a little bit on what are some solutions that we can bring to the table so people aren't just profoundly discouraged about what's going on. Um, So a little bit more discouragement before we offer solutions. All right. Because I'm, I'm frustrated that conservatives and fiscal conservatives are, are in such a minority at this point. Tax cuts actually uh, increased revenue to the treasury. Unfortunately, when we did that over the last eight years or so, they didn't also cut spending. So right. if you want to get a raw, uh, uh, get away from all this malfeasance, all the, all the feeding at the trough and all the other negative things that come to it, you got to starve the beast. You can't keep feeding the beast. And every time we have a discussion about infrastructure, about COVID, about something else, we never, ever have a discussion to say, you know what, this is an imperative. And so we're going to have to cut over here. That That's not what happens. Now, I personally come to the conclusion that the real, the only real way to do this is to send this decision to the states in the form of a balanced budget amendment and let them decide whether or not they want the federal government to actually balance our books. Because what people forget is that 75% of the four plus trillion dollars that is the normal base budget is automatic programmatic spending. It happens no matter what Congress does. You don't have to touch it with an appropriations bill. So we talk about this four plus trillion dollars, but the COVID relief and the other COVID relief and the infrastructure bill and then the the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's supposedly bipartisan. And then the other one, that's all in addition to, there's no subtraction somewhere else. So I guess the mantra has to be, where are we going to starve the beast 
we just can't keep putting millions of people on the federal payroll like we do. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the biggest failures uh, of the Trump administration. A lot of great successes of the Trump administration, but one of the failings was their their lack of interest in cutting spending. And, and the Amen. reality is you've seen, you've seen it with your colleagues, and Eric, you and I have studied it for years. Uh, there, there's not a lot of upside politically, politically, to being a fiscal hawk in Washington, D.C., because it seems to be largely about bringing back the bacon for your district. And in order for you to get bacon for your district, you have to support bacon in 434 other districts. Yeah, Here, I love I love the idea that you asked Jason Chaffetz, hey, how many members of Congress do you think are going to turn down this money for their areas and their cities? Like, God bless Peter Schweitzer that he thinks that that's even like a viable political strategy at all. You know better than that, Peter. Well, Here, give us give us some hope here, though. Jason's giving us hope. I think balanced budget amendment is a terrific idea. It's an opportunity to basically say we're going to cut, we're going to limit, we're going to make you uh, uh, make difficult choices in how you're going to spend money. What is something else that we can do? Other than just throw up our hands and say that's the way Washington is uh, and write it off. Well, at the risk of patting ourselves on the back, I think part of the reason why we started this podcast is to give information like what we're doing. And to me, it's a it's a messaging issue. Like I, what Jason said about connecting food deserts to crime, right? We've all heard of food deserts before, and we hear that messaging a lot, but it, but it's never presented in a way of, hey – uh, the food deserts exist because the crime is up and retailers won't want to be there. Of course, that makes sense. But it's always presented as, no, food deserts exist because we've done a poor job of providing an infrastructure that allows people to have access to food. That's why we need feeding programs through schools. That's why we need all these other things, right? Uh, so I think the idea of, of pairing the consequences of some of these policies to the impacts people have in real life is a big deal. And I think, honestly, one of the frames we've explored on several of these episodes is look at who the winners and losers have been in this post-pandemic landscape, right? We talked yeah. about how these major corporations are the ones that are still standing. The smaller corporations have gone away. These big pharmaceutical companies have made out very well, right, at the expense of some other things. And now we're saying, look, failed democratic policies are actively being subsidized by the federal government. Is that really what we want? And by the way, those failed policies resulting in increases in crime, decreases in quality of life. I think that you have to be able to communicate that and help connect the dots for people. And I think if we keep doing that, hopefully then that leads to you know some more engagement on some of these key issues. Well, fundamentally, what I think you're both saying is that if we believe, as I think the vast majority of the American people do, that we want uh, growth and development and economic prosperity to come to underprivileged areas in America, you have to have the police and law enforcement there first. You can create an enterprise zone. You can spend a lot of government money, which really won't be very effective. But unless you have some kind of law enforcement police presence, you're simply not going to get growth there. And I think the point that you're also both making, which I think is also critical, is that people themselves have to be prepared to say, uh, I'm prepared to give up some of the bacon in my district in order to deal with this larger problem. And, and this, the sad problem is people tend to think the problem is with other elected officials, not necessarily with their own elected official. And that's part of the challenge that, that people have to embrace and people have to understand. So, Jason, where do we go from here with COVID? I know that's a, a big a big, broad question. But when it comes to these issues of fiscal matters, you wrote a book 
about this subject. Uh, they never let a crisis grow to waste. You talk about how they've abused this crisis for their benefit. But where do we go from here? Do you see the tide turning with the American people when it comes to the lockdowns and the excessive reach of government? Or do you feel like people are still looking to the government to solve these problems? Um, I don't think we've turned the corner yet. Uh, I think, quite frankly, we have focused far too much on this cult of personality um, along the way, and we get dis- distracted by this shiny little object here or there and some little nuance. Um, but you know what? Uh, members of Congress are very self-serving. They are going to go and do what voters want and demand them to do. I think ultimately the American people have to rise up and say, I want you to explain to me where you're going to cut spending because we're spending too much. But I can tell you as somebody who's done a hundred plus town hall meetings in a very conservative district, that never happens. I, I, I would never ever have a meeting and have them say, well, how do you plan to reform social security or how do you plan to save Medicare? Like that was just never a question I ever got ever. And, um, I think one of the other things that is in Thomas Griffith, who was, um, you was with the U.S. Court of Appeals, retired recently. Um, he's written, written some very thoughtful uh, pieces. And, and one of them that he talked about that really does scare me as an underlying premise is there used to be a respect, if you will, about government. I think there was almost a reverence in, in part. Um, but I think people have lost faith in, for instance, probably first and foremost, the Department of Justice. I just don't think that people feel, and you can make cases on both sides of the aisle, that their faith that there will be an equal application of justice, it just doesn't seem to happen. And and we can come to illustrative points. I mean, we talk a lot here about Hunter Biden and how the Bidens enrich themselves. We talk about the cronyism that happens at all levels. And, and people just don't ever see somebody actually getting handcuffs and going to jail. Whether you're robbing a Walgreens and stealing $300 worth of stuff, or you're at the highest levels, you know, ripping off the American taxpayers, you just don't see it. And and if people don't feel the, the confidence that they that the rule of law is paramount, it's 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 ironic because so many people flee their homelands coming to the United States of America because of the rule of law. But it's undermined through the immigration policy of, of Trump or of Biden and, and Harris. It all these things are undermined. And so I don't think we've turned the corner yet because I I I think there's a communication problem. I believe what Margaret Thatcher said. I I believe that you have to first win the argument, then you go out and win the votes. But people have to demand a responsible, effective, efficient government, and that the waste, fraud, and abuse somebody actually goes to jail for that, or they're just going to keep doing it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a risk-reward-benefit uh, choice that they're making on a regular basis. Eric, what do you think? Are we turning the corner, or do you think that um, we're, we're going to continue to see this decline? Because I agree. I think the, the level of distrust and lack of faith in governments um, – is is you know reaching you know pretty much all time lows. Uh, it dipped a lot, of course, during Watergate. You could argue that that was sort of one man and a group of individuals around him. But we're now talking about or sort of a systematic level when it comes to the Department of Justice or immigrant 
the rules don't seem to apply to everybody equal and people are very discouraged. Final thoughts on that? Yeah, I guess the final thoughts, and I think this is another source of optimism, is I think people are voting um, against some of these things, but they're voting with their feet, right? Like they're leaving these cities, they're leaving these areas where you've got co- you know draconian lockdowns, failed policies by Democrat politicians. I mean, look at the real estate values in states like Florida. Look at the real estate values in states like Texas where they're a bit more open. So I think ideally, eventually, like that's the kind of market force that we have to rely upon to bring some corrective action, right? If, if enough people are supporting, even by way of like where they live under that level of government, then you'd like to think that, um, you know, there'd be some positive incentives and positive reinforcement that goes along with that. So I, so I, I will say, I think that's what gives me optimism. I think people are, they're flocking to well, the, the, the other side of that coin is, you know, Utah, Idaho, some of these other places, we're some of the fastest growing states, but I, I'm afraid that the demographic is going to change and we'll start doing the stupid stuff that we learned in California that you should never do. And then they say, oh, well, let's do that here. And then oh, but anyway, well, I, I want, know, I'm an eternal optimist, but I got to tell you, where are I'm the saying, people that say, saying, when bro. are you going to cut something? <laughs> I, I, I Go find somebody in Congress who gives a little bit more than lip service to what are we going to cut. We have 10 right. supposed you know, senators working on a bipartisan bill. But look at the pay-fors. And then also look at, okay, so you're going to go pass a bipartisan infrastructure bill only to have the Democrats ramrod through another transportation or infrastructure bill on top of that. If they're going to strike a deal... Strike a deal for one, not two. No, it's yeah, a great point. But I, I think that the the average person, right? I mean, I think you're correct that Congress is fundamentally broken um, and by everything that you just evidence. I guess what I would say is I think the American people are sort of rejecting that in terms of where they choose to live and the experience of the American life they're choosing to have. Uh, but yeah, so then, so where do we go from there? I don't know. That, that's for next week's episode, man. You know, <laughs> well, that's the key question, right? When the Californians are moving to Utah uh, or the New Yorkers moving to Florida, are they leaving liberal politics behind them or are they bringing with them to those states and not learning the lesson? And that may be an interesting topic in the future. Well, thank you for joining us on the drill down. Today we learned from Jason Chaffetz uh, the fundamental challenges of getting Congress uh, to cut spending to avoid. Uh, these deceptive plans. We learned that Eric Eggers uh, is not a guy you want to play three-card Monty. Uh, and if you are interested in learning more about these issues, go to our website, thedrilldown.com, where you can listen to this podcast or you can read some of the written work that we've been doing. Jason and Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.